now. Do I have your full attention? Screw you. Hello to Yogi. Hello to Boo Boo. Hello to Scooby Doo. Barney and Bradley. Don't forget your goat leggings. Well, par me all over the place. Well, here the news has just been all of the bushfire stuff and the extremely hazardous levels of smoke. That has blanketed my city, making it very hard to live my life. Nearly as infuriating as uh, this government's refusal to acknowledge climate change in the biggest climate disaster in our nation's history. Also, just that fucking every single safe koala population seems to be under threat. Literally yesterday on the news, one of the, like, as yet undisturbed koala populations is under threat because a fire started on French Island, which is... Only accessible by boat. Maybe we should ask the very limited audience we have to donate to Wires Australia. Everyone who's listening, i.e. Amelia's friends and family, please donate. <laughs> and co-workers. <laughs> uh, please donate to uh, whatever organisation you can, particularly wildlife organisations uh, in Victoria and New South Wales. The local are the better because they understand the environment. I don't really have any actual fun anecdotes uh, Tiff, why don't you tell us what you received in the mail? Oh, yes. I received in the mail a postcard from Mickey Rooney's hotel. And I'm going to post pictures maybe on Twitter because I can't even describe this thing. It's We've got a picture on the back of the postcard of Mickey Rooney himself and his disembodied hand. Uh, apparently there was a venue at the hotel called Mickey Rooney's Nightclub, N-I-T-E. Imagine the bathrooms in that place. There's coke all over the counters. Isn't this out in the Pennsylvania Dutch country or something? Starting you partying with the Amish? There's the Amish... The Amish are doing poppers. There is just so much going on. Um, no, the seller would not ship to Canada. So the seller shipped it to me, and then I had to pay the customs fees on it. And it took <laughs> about 85 years for it to get through customs, apparently, because I shipped it well before Christmas. Oh, it took a long time. And it has been, my uh, mailbox is not in front of my house. It's on my street. We have, like, a neighborhood mailbox thing. And we didn't check the mail on Friday or Monday, so it was just sitting in there, and we had a huge cold snap, like minus 35 degree cold snap. And Ronk was just sitting there in the mailbox for like five days straight, just freezing his ass off. It's really very sad, but he was literally chilling. Uh, I'd also like to apologize for the audio quality on my end this episode, because as soon as we decided to hit record, a thunderstorm rolled in. So also, uh, thanks for your understanding and us moving to a fortnightly <laughs> schedule for this podcast. It's because of extenuating personal circumstances. <laughs> That's how I'm going to say it. So no one can question it. We don't want it to be like a permanent thing. It's just for now because things have been tricky on my end specifically. <laughs> but we're trying. We're, we'll be back to once a week someday, maybe. I don't know. Hopefully. I mean, maybe if we got more listeners. It's a threat. I'm holding the listeners hostage. We won't give you more episodes until... Until I start seeing some metrics on iTunes. I had no business hosting the Oscars. After the show, Meryl Streep spit on me. <laughs> Thank you.
hello everyone. Welcome to What's in the Basket on this very special episode of What's in the Basket. Uh, today we are talking about the Academy Awards because we're being topical for once. I'm Amelia and I'm joined by my co-hosts Candace, Hello. And Tiff. Hello. And I'm going to hand the reins over to Tiff because this is not my episode. Well, in honor of the Academy Awards, I don't like to say that because that suggests like a level of tolerance for the Academy Awards that I don't necessarily have, but I don't know how else to phrase it. Um, I'm not covering real Oscars history because that's a whole other can of worms that could be like a limited series of its own, honestly. But I've compiled some favorite moments from Oscars history in terms of like the ceremonies themselves, not so much the actual winners. While you were talking, it sounded like um, like a white noise machine was going off in the background amelia it was just like (laughs) yeah it's just it's um it's just my tin roof and the hail hitting my tin roof i'm uh i'm actually broadcasting from the unabomber shed (laughs) (laughs) do you think ted kaczynski saw the 1990 1989 oscars did he have an antenna did he have a tv inside the shack no he was anti-technology why would he have a television why because he, he wanted carved to see the Oscars out of wood. So he no. wanted to see Martin Landau at the Academy Awards, just like I did. Everybody loves a star, okay? Even the Unabomber. Ted Kaczynski loved who's Ted Kaczynski's favorite movie star. Um, I was like uh, thinking, I was like June Allison. Would Ted would take no? But June Allison would make me do a, a bombing. I love June Allison. Um, I don't. I don't love June Allison. That's a lie. That's a bald-faced lie. I'm going to tell the... I'm going to briefly tell the June Allison story just because I think this is the funniest thing I've ever heard. Many, many moons ago, I was not alive, but my aunt's friend of a friend worked at a restaurant in Hollywood or thereabouts. Um, I don't remember which restaurant it was that had a, an older... Uh, studio era kind of clientele this would have been i think the 70s mid 70s maybe early 70s and they were always instructed never to approach the guests or ask for autographs or anything like that which of course i find very funny because so many of these people like what 25 year old working as a waiter is going to recognize any of these old fucks to begin with you know so i think they should have been flattered but whatever and he never broke that rule but one time june allison came in and he was totally starstruck, adored June Allison. And towards the end of her meal, he went up to her and he was like, I know I'm not supposed to do this. And I really apologize, but I just am your biggest fan. And I was wondering if, and she just looked at him and she just went, fuck off. And then went back to eating her dessert. <laughs> and I think that is so horrible on a lot of levels. One, because fuck you, June Allison. Two, I think that by the 1970s, these people should be grateful that anyone recognizes them, you know, because so many of them are stuck doing like demeaning like bit parts and commercials to get by. The June Allison should be fucking grateful somebody's asking for her autograph in a restaurant. Okay, you know, fuck off with that. And third of all, she's June Allison, so she should be grateful she has a career at all because she's terrible. A terrible actress, a terrible performer. One of the few people I think I can, can say that I, I have never enjoyed one of her performances. There's not a single June Allison performance where I've been like, oh, okay, well, she was good in that. No, I've never had that moment. And there's not many people who are that consistently awful in every single movie. So that's my June Allison story. That's explaining my antipathy towards June Allison. It, it, it compounds the fact that I dislike her so much as a performer. But that to me is just like the pinnacle of like weirdly entitled celebrity behavior at the point where you are no longer even a celebrity. Like, you're fucking June Allison. You're not Audrey Hepburn. You know, you're June Allison. Also, like, by that point in time, you're so far removed from people asking for autographs all the time that it's like, 
who even knows who you are anymore? It's just I always I always find stories like that to be very funny because then you'll hear about people being like amazed. Like when my mom met John Forsythe because she was working on a TV show that John Forsythe was on. And she asked him to sign her trouble with Harry Lobby card. And he was like, I can't believe that anyone your age would know who I am, blah, 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 blah. And he was just like really shocked and very, you know, humble about it. And I always hear stories like that. And so I think it's very funny, the June Allison story, because it's just like, fuck off, June Allison. Stupid June Allison. Anyway, fuck June Allison. <laughs> Stupid June Allison. <laughs> I just hate her so much. I just, I hate those movies, those June Allison Peter Lawford movies and those June Allison Van Johnson movies, all of those horrible MGM musicals just make me want to kill myself anyway well i know i said i wouldn't actually cover like actual oscars history but i will give a quick rundown of the origins of the oscars because i think it's relevant um so the origins of the academy awards lie with louis b mayer Basically, we wouldn't have the Oscars today if Mayer hadn't been paranoid about labor organization in 1926, which was the year Mayer, head of MGM and one of the most powerful men in Hollywood, decided he wanted a brand new beach house in Santa Monica and he wanted it like right now. <laughs> so Mayer was accustomed to the quick turnaround and set design and construction on the studio lot. He had MGM art director Cedric Gibbons draw up the plans for his dream beach mansion and insisted that the entire thing go up in six weeks. So to achieve this, it was calculated that he would need three full crews working in rotating shifts virtually every hour of every day, and he intended to make this happen, of course, using studio labor. Unfortunately for Mayer, the studios had just signed an agreement with the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, and the secure pay rates, and over time now allotted to union members, meant that using studio work to meet his self-imposed six-week deadline would be massively expensive. So ultimately, the Mayer Beach House was constructed in record time using a handful of studio workers and a lot of cheap outsourced labor, but the experience was enough to open Mayer's eyes to the dangers of unionization, and he became very aware of the destructive potential for organization among writers and actors and directors, uh, destructive to his own bottom line. So he became convinced that he had to suppress this potential before it came to fruition. So really, strike one, literally strike one against the Academy, the fact that it's anti-union. And I mean, you know, that's part of the reason why the film industry moved to Los Angeles in the first place. I think I mentioned this on a previous episode, but it really gets my goat when people assume it's like, oh, well, it was the weather. It's like, it wasn't the weather. The weather was part of it, but part of it was that Los Angeles was uh, was an open shop town. Unionization was really uh, stalled at every possible turn by the city's uh, Republican establishment and because the LA Times was a weapon of the industrial classes you know there was there was unionization was stalled everywhere in los angeles from the studios to the goodyear plant in van nuys down to the oil rigs in san pedro and long beach that was part of the material condition of los angeles at the time and what made the city so attractive for business and uh i always find it very funny when people suggest that labor issues and the uh ability to corral and manage labor in a manner that's I guess injurious to the to the laborers themselves like wasn't part of the intention behind the move to Los Angeles and the decision to stay in Los Angeles. You know, it's not all about being able to shoot outside on the beach. I mean, it's literally it's literally the foundation of modern America is the oppression and exploitation of workers. 
literally every fucking state, every city has somehow been formed to crush the unions. Like, and like, it's very different between Australia and America because what you have as unions now is definitely not what a union should be. They're like little skeletons of unions. Look at your air traffic controller union. Uh, in the 80s, Reagan totally fucking destroyed that union because they tried to, you know, ask for their rights. So now basically no union exists, whereas here the unions, they exist and are strong up until a certain point, but our, um, the LNP wants to destroy them because obviously when workers have power, rich people get scared. Fellow comrades rise up against... the academy. So Mayor's solution was to create his own organization to handle labor issues internally, while also serving a public relations role to improve the film industry's image, which was suffering in the late 1920s following a number of scandals throughout the decade. Uh, The idea was hashed out over dinner with Mayor, actor Conrad Nagel, director Fred Niblo, and Fred Beetson, the head of the Association of Motion Picture Producers, and they decided that the group would be an elite club, surprise, comprised of members handpicked by Mayor, hailing from five branches of the industry, actors, directors, writers, technicians, and producers. Fuck Conrad Nagel. Fuck Conrad Nagel and his bald ass. Conrad Nagel and his fucking mayor brown nosing is so pathetic to me. Like, Nils Asler would never the worst MGM leading man of the late 1920s, bar none. That's my stance on Conrad Nagel. So these members would meet at annual banquets, the first of which was held in January 1927 and was attended by 36 so-called Academy founders. The organization was christened the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, Douglas Fairbanks Sr. was elected as its first president, and it became a legal corporation in May 1927. Then, at some point, a committee for the awards of merit was formed within the Academy, and in Mayer's own words, quote, I found that the best way to handle filmmakers was to hang medals all over them. If I got them cups and awards, they'd kill themselves to produce what I wanted. That's why the Academy Award was created. What a fucking cunt. Like, it makes me so angry, I can't articulate how angry it makes me. Once again, Gibbons was recruited, this time to design the award statuette, a golden man plunging a sword into a reel of film with five spokes, each representing one of the original five industry branches eligible for Academy membership. Gibbons' design was then sculpted by 24-year-old artist George Stanley, who was paid $500, or about $7,500 today. Describing the statuette, screenwriter Frances Marion said, The little gold-washed statuette was thought by skeptics and art lovers a bit on the amateurish side. Still, I saw it as a perfect symbol of the picture business. A powerful athletic body clutching a gleaming sword with half of his head, that part which held his brains, completely sliced off. (laughs) (laughs) Brutal. The first Academy Award ceremony was held at the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel on May 16th, 1929, and it was pretty low-key. The winners were announced three months ahead of time. Uh, It took host Douglas Fairbanks 15 minutes to hand out all the awards, and most of the acting nominees didn't bother to show up. According to Best Actress winner Janet Gaynor, who did show up, uh, it was more like a private party than a big public ceremony. It wasn't open to anyone but Academy members, and as you danced, you saw the most important people in Hollywood whirling past you. She also said the most exciting part of the entire evening was meeting Fairbanks, which I guess goes to show how much clout the award held at that point, i.e. none. There's um, there's a really good picture of Janet posing with her Oscar. There's a couple of them. We should put it, this one in the post I'm thinking of, though, and she's so glum. 
Like, she's looking at the Oscar <laughs> like it's a dingo that ate her baby. And it's very funny to me. <laughs> and she said later on that had she known that this was going to be a whole thing, she would have been more excited at the time. But yeah, at the time, it was like, okay, whatever. At the I time, guess, it just know. wasn't a thing. It's, it's it wasn't a thing. thing. You never want to go with anything that Louis B. Mayer is behind. Yeah, exactly. Ew. <laughs> Ew. Ew. So the next year's ceremony received slightly more attention, though it wasn't necessarily positive. Um, unlike the first awards, the second were broadcast on local radio, and they became the focus of the first of many, many, many Oscars controversies uh, when observers noted that several of the nominees seemed to have been chosen from the original pool of 36 founding Academy members. <clears throat> Suspicious. At this stage, the awards were decided not by an Academy-wide vote, but by a five-man central board of judges. Jesus and Christ. And Best Actress winner and Academy founder Mary Pickford basically invented the entire concept of the Oscar campaign when she invited that whole board to pick fair for tea and then went on to win the award. Honestly, what is it about elites that are just like, ah, oh, I have an oligarchy inside my oligarchy? Mary is unfortunately one of those people where the more you learn about her, the less you like her. And I think that's a shame because she's such uh, an electrifying actress and such an important figure in film history. But it's like all of her like political and social leanings to me are just so repugnant that it's like, I wish I could scrub them from my brain. Just like no shame. She's shameless. I wonder how she felt about her husband doing the nasty with the ugly man whose name escapes me. The ugly man. I can't I can't believe it's not <laughs> Nelson Eddy. Jean uh, Raymond. Jean Raymond. I wonder how she felt about her husband making making doing doing the sex with Jean Raymond. Not not Doug, for people who didn't listen to that episode. Not Douglas Fairbanks. Um, Buddy Rogers. Allegedly. Imagine if it was Doug. <laughs> what I want to know is what you served up for dinner in this campaign. Like, what do you think? Like, roast beef and potatoes? Oh, absolutely. Because all people ate back then. Probably, like, some sort of creamy, like, sauce that's got, like, lobster in it. And then, like, some nasty, like, sauerkraut. Some fucking, like, turtle soup or something. Yeah. Who fucking knows? God. Back then, that's why everybody died so young back then. Because all they ate was just, like, ass loads of protein and carbs. And not a single vegetable in sight that hasn't been pickled. There was significant backlash, uh, accusations of Academy favoritism, and the Central Board of Judges was ultimately dissolved in favor of a more democratic voting system, which has existed in some form ever since. So then issues of censorship obviously were a hot topic in the early sound era prior to the enforcement of the Production Code in 1934. The face of Hollywood censorship was, of course, Will Hayes, who was unfortunately allowed to speak at both the third and fourth Academy Awards ceremonies. In his first speech, Hayes sounded extremely normal and not at all self-flagellating when he said, quote, Good taste is good business, and to offend good taste is to fortify sales resistance. Nothing unclean can maintain growth and vitality. When a tree begins to collect blights, it begins to wither. So does reputation, so does business. So that's fucking weird. That's really weird. Did he, like, wear a hair shirt? Like, what was his <laughs> deal? Like, I know where I say we, I mean me and Tiff, very anti-horny on this podcast. But, like, this is on a whole other level where, like, he would prefer to see everybody coming out looking like Ken and Barbie dolls. Like, just absolutely nothing going on. He's got, like, Comstock, like, levels of repression going on, and I don't know what happened to him as a child, but it probably wasn't good. But maybe some people just turn out like that. Some people just turn out turbo virgins, you know? That's just how they pop out. 
They pop out as a turbo virgin. They live life as a turbo virgin. And that's him. Yeah, he gives me like albino monk in Da Vinci Code whipping his own back vibes. Like, Was Will Hayes married? Did he have kids? Do we I'm know if sure. he ever lost his virginity? I forgot about his whole uh, Teapot Dome collab. His his collab on the biggest mixtape of the Harding administration, you know. His widow died in 1960. No kids. No children. Interesting. Interesting. I'm going to have to do some... Fir- I don't think I've ever read a book on Hayes, which is a bit of a... That's probably not good. I should probably do that at some point in my life. And according to Francis Marion, again... Hayes rose and for 50 minutes extolled the virtues of the picture business since the censor board had eliminated its vices. 50. 5-0. Lessons, however, were not learned. Hayes took the stage again at the fourth Academy Awards and soldiered on despite the crowd talking through most of his speech. If that wasn't enough, Hayes was followed by the night's guest of honor, U.S. Vice President Charles Curtis. Curtis was apparently even more boring and meandering than Will Hayes. He spoke for so long that comedian Roscoe Eights eventually led a crowd out into the hotel lobby where he entertained them with vaudeville antics until academy officials literally begged them to come back so there would be sufficient response (laughs) when the vice president finally finished speaking the combined effect was a ceremony so boring nine-year-old best actor nominee jackie cooper passed out on best actress nominee marie dressler's arm and had to be lifted away from her when she won the award and of curtis's speech author homer croy recalled even if i live to be as old as redwood i'll never forget that speech which to me is the nadir of all banquet speeches george s kaufman <laughs> could have written a play around it you imagine you're just trying to get through the night you're wearing your monkey suit you know there's there's not enough booze flowing because will hayes is you know doing on his puritan shit there's a kid passed out over there you know they're, they're <laughs> juggling out there in the hallway you know you just desperately want to leave i'm imagining this as if you're lou Ayers is the way i'm, I'm going with yeah. this you're lou Ayers. i'm seeing this through lou's eyes fanfic you are lou Ayers at the fourth academy awards and so these moments were rough but i don't think hayes and curtis really had the self-awareness to be embarrassed by them uh the academy Awards for first truly humiliating Oscars moment therefore goes, in my opinion, to our boy Frank Capra, who at the 6th Academy Awards in 1934, there were three men nominated for Best Director, Capra for Lady for a Day, Frank Lloyd for Cavalcade, and George Cukor for Little Woman. So show host Will Rogers was tasked with presenting the award, and he said... Well, 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 what do you know? I've watched this young man for a long time. Saw him come up from the bottom, and I mean the bottom. It couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. Come up and get it, Frank. I imagine you can see where this is going. (laughs) (laughs) So... I'm just going to read directly from the book Inside Oscar, which is my major source for this episode. Not my only source, but everything will be listed on the WordPress. But I can't add anything to this, so I'm just going to read straight from there. Frank Capra, his dream come true, jumped from his table and made his way across the crowded room. As the spotlight searched for the winner, Capra waved his arms and shouted, Over here. The spotlight landed on Frank. Frank Lloyd, that is. The director of Cavalcade walked proudly to the dais, where Rogers embraced him. A crestfallen Capra stood on the dance floor until a party behind him yelled down in front. Capra wrote in his autobiography that he then took the longest, saddest, most shattering walk of my life. All my friends at my table were crying. I remember reading this in Capra's autobiography and just being like, I bet he's so glad that television didn't exist <laughs> I know. at that yeah. point in time. But I'm going to blame Will. 
I think that was really dumb. Roger should have known better. He should have known better. He should have known that Frank is just a, a slutty, slutty, slutty little Oscar thirsty. You know, he should have known. He should have known that Capra loved the gold. Well, also, if like two nominees have the same first name, just fucking finish that name. Finish saying that name. <laughs> I, Will Rogers made a lot of mistakes in his life. Okay. One, getting on that plane. Oh, no. Two, um, giving us Joel like, in general. That was a horrible idea. Horrible decision. I do think it's interesting. Would Will Rogers be the only Oscar host of color up until like ever? Who was the first Oscars host? Sammy Davis Jr. hosted a lot. Oh, right. I completely forgot about Sammy. Okay. All right. Well, for the first, what? Probably like 30 Yeah, years that's still then, a few decades. Yeah. Yeah. Good for him. Sorry to this man, Frank Capra. Oh, it's so bad. It's such a bad story. But obviously, uh, Capra emerged victorious in the end. At the next year's ceremony, his film It Happened One Night became the first movie to win Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Director, and Best Screenplay, a feat only matched by One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in 1976 and The Silence of the Lambs in 1992. Famously, no one involved with It Happened One Night expected this staggering success or really any success. Stars Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert hadn't wanted to make the movie in the first place, and Colbert was so doubtful of her chances she skipped the awards entirely and was at the train station waiting to embark on a cross-country trip when she was notified last minute of her Best Actress win. She was rushed to the ceremony, accepted her award from Shirley Temple, and was back on her way to the train station within six minutes. (laughs) Mood. Ah. What a mood. <laughs> For his part, Capra, burned by the humiliation of the previous year's events, hesitated to go up to the podium at all until he was reassured that it was safe this time. <laughs> uh, once he had his award, though, he apparently went off. The after party at his house seemed to have been something of a rager with fistfights and dudes falling into ponds. And then Capra downing two magnums of champagne entirely by himself before passing out on his front lawn clutching his Oscar. When they first screened the restoration of It Happened One Night and Frank Capra Jr. was in attendance this was at the Bing Theater in Los Angeles. For anyone else who might have been there at the same time as me. Bing as in the search engine? I like that idea. That Bill <laughs> Bill Gates would. He would do that. No. Uh, but they played the footage from that Oscars. And he just he just looks so excited. I mean, it's it's funny to think that because now every time there's um an Oscar speech in which to someone is too effusive, it like gets memed to hell and back. But it's interesting to remember that there was a point in time in which the award really did mean something. And that was apparently around the time that Frank Capra won, because as we've established for the first four or five years of it, it's absolutely meaningless. But, yeah. <laughs> and then it, it has gained just enough credibility for somebody like Frank Capra to, you know, almost commit, you know, Harakiri over it. So uh, <laughs> I, think, I think that's very funny to see how rapidly it gains its stature. So in 1939, in a truly baffling move that I have to say is nevertheless pretty in line with what I've come to expect from the Academy, they decided to ban radio coverage of the ceremony. For some reason, I couldn't find any, like, explanation as to why. However, one reporter, George Fisher with the local station KNX, managed to lock himself in a broadcast booth at the hotel and went on the air for several minutes until the Academy received a call from the narcs at NBC who demanded to know why KNX was allowed to broadcast while they weren't. So then hotel security used axes to break down the door of the broadcast booth and Fisher obviously went off the air. I have no idea why they banned radio. Like Maybe they're just trying to protect like the public. <laughs> they're trying to protect the public from Hollywood. They knew that Jimmy Durante was going to be there and... <laughs> 
So the Academy had jilted radio in 1939, but in 1940, the newspapers turned out to be the real enemy. This was the year Gone with the Wind steamrolled everyone. Uh, Hattie McDaniel became the first African-American to win an Oscar. McDaniel was surprised by her win, but for several other nominees, there was very little surprise to be had. This was because the Los Angeles Times leaked the winners in the 845 edition, and the actual ceremony didn't even start until 11. So nominees like Clark Gable and Betty Davis knew hours ahead of time that they hadn't won. Uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, the 1941 awards were therefore the first to feature sealed envelopes and complete secrecy surrounding the results. That's why Jimmy Stewart looks so fucking pumped when he picks <laughs> up his Oscar. I forgot that was the first year. I was going to say, are we going to talk about the 1938 nine, 1938 Oscars with Alice Brady? Oh, no, I don't have that. I guess just a quick rundown. Alice Brady was not in attendance. She won Best Supporting Actress for her performance in the Ty Power movie in Old Chicago. Someone went up to accept her award. Nobody knows who the fuck it was. And she never got her Oscar. At the time, it was just a plaque because Best Supporting didn't receive the full-sized Oscar statuette. So it was just, it was just a plaque. Um, I don't know when they switched over to the to the full size statuette um, for supporting wins, but anyway, yeah. So Alice Brady just I think Alice Brady was sick, and that's why she wasn't in attendance. And some fucking dude just ran up there and was like, "Thanks, y'all," and he just bounced. So the awards were scaled back during the war with a decrease in fanfare and women encouraged to avoid elaborate evening gowns. Well, patriotism was obviously emphasized. In 1943, the ceremony began with Jeanette McDonald singing the national anthem while Tyrone Power and Alan Ladd, in uniform, brought in an American flag, which they then briefly struggled to unfurl. It's because they're both so short. <laughs> Small arms. Can't get it, like, can't open a flag all the way because oh they're both so short. <laughs> get Gary Cooper in there. Yeah, really. <laughs> so Greer Garson won Best Actress that year for her work as the lead in the morale-boosting Mrs. Miniver and spoke for well over five minutes, spawning a long-running Hollywood joke that she'd gone for over an hour. Joan Fontaine presents the award for Best Performance by Any Actress in 1942 to lovely Greer Garson, Mrs. Miniver. Ladies and gentlemen, I came to this country as a stranger five years ago. I've been very happy and very proud to be a member of this community and of this industry all that time. And from everybody I met or worked with, truly, I have received such ready kindness that for quite a long while I couldn't believe that it was true. But tonight, you have made me feel that you have really set the door of your friendship wide open and that welcome is officially on the mat and that is why I'm so happy. Uh, meanwhile, noted fascist gossip columnist Hedda Hopper, who had spurned the no evening gowns rule, threw a fit over Mrs. Miniver's success at the awards because she deemed the American MGM feature insufficiently American because it was about English people. I mean, we all hate the English, but like I hate Hedda Hopper more, so. I love her showing up in these fucking big evening gowns after they've asked them very nicely not to do that. And then she's like, you made a movie about the English, though. That's a problem. So another wartime measure was the switch from gold plated bronze Oscar statuettes to plaster for the duration. And in one notable incident, 1945 Best Actor winner Barry Fitzgerald accidentally decapitated his plaster Oscar while practicing his golf swing, which would happen to me. 
The first Oscars after the war saw a return to glitz, glamour, and showmanship, thanks in no small part to consummate movie star and Best Actress nominee Joan Crawford. Crawford didn't show up to the ceremony, claiming to have pneumonia. Meanwhile, her Mildred Pierce co-star and Best Supporting Actress nominee Anne Blythe appeared, sporting a body cast after breaking her back in a tobogganing accident. Yeah, it was like, she was really fucked up. (laughs) And um, it took her a long time to get back into acting. And it's just like, man, how, like, was it the toboggan from fucking Christmas Vacation? Like, what (laughs) the fuck's going on? This is what happens when you do sports. Recreation. Being outside. Being outside is all. Joan wouldn't go outside. I have to defend Joan Crawford in all of her endeavors. And this is one of the ones I truly understand. I would not pretend I had pneumonia. I would just be like, I do not vibe with this. (laughs) I do not vibe with this because if I go and I lose, I will puke. Yeah, it's um, a matter of debate, I guess, whether Crawford was genuinely ill or stricken with stage fright or highly adept at cultivating what was sure to become a brilliant publicity moment or a combination of all of those things. But in any case, she was home in bed listening to the awards on the radio when she won and Mildred Pierce director Michael Curtiz accepted the Oscar on her behalf, describing her as very, very ill. Uh, the Oscar was then delivered to Crawford in bed, which of course made for a great photo op, and according to her publicist, Henry Rogers, Joan may have been afraid to attend the Oscar ceremonies that night, but she was also a great showwoman. The photos of her in bed clutching the Oscar pushed all the other winners off the front page. She was there all by herself. Meanwhile, Anne Blythe's there at the show in her fucking body cast with a broken spine, just like... (laughs) And she fucking loses. And she fucking... Who did Anne Blythe lose to? Oh, Anne Revere in National Velvet. Oh, that is Oh, sad. that's brutal. <laughs> that is brutal. Oh, well, I think the problem was that uh, Anne and Eve Arden were both nominated for Mildred Pierce, you know, in the same category. And that always, you know, uh, leads you to cancel each other out. Wow. I think they should have they changed it the last minute because she was there in that full body cast. What do you do? Like, a s- sling a shawl over the cast to glitz it up a bit? What are you going to do? And jeez. For the 19th Academy Awards in 1947, I've got a very brief Ronnie story for you. These awards were opened by Screen Actors Guild president Ronald Reagan, who presented a silent montage of Oscar-winning films titled The Parade of Stars. However, thanks to a technical fuck-up, the film was projected upside down and backwards on the ceiling instead of the screen. Standing with his back to the film, an oblivious Reagan powered through his narration— This picture embodies the glories of the past, the memories of our present, and the inspiration of our future as this thing is playing on the ceiling upside down and backwards. I mean, are we sure that he wasn't in his mental decline? (laughs) I mean... I mean, his acting shows evidence of it. Yeah. I'm a terrible actor. Ronald Reagan and and June Allison in... Did they ever make a movie together? I hope they did. So I can burn the print. So this was also the year Harold Russell won Best Supporting Actor for the Best Years of Our Lives. Russell was a non-actor who had lost both of his hands while teaching demolition work at an army camp in 1944, and after unexpectedly winning the Oscar, he chose not to pursue acting any further and got a business degree in 1949. Then in 1992, he became the face of a controversy when he auctioned off his award for $60,500, more than $100,000 today, to help pay for his wife's medical expenses. And according to Russell, I don't know why anybody would be critical. My wife's health is more important than sentimental reasons. The movie will be here even if the Oscar isn't. Very true. Also get some universal health care up in there. Despite Russell's reasoning, which I think was very fair, the Academy threw a fit because winners are forbidden from selling any Oscar memorabilia in accordance with a rule that 
that went into effect in 1950. Tough shit for them, though, because Russell won in 1947 and never agreed to that stipulation. Sucks to suck, bitch. That's really evil to give an old man shit for selling his Oscar when his wife is, like, dying. But anyway, the 25th Annual Academy Awards in 1953 were the first to be televised. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Bob Hope. Thank you very much, Mr. Brackett. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Suspense. <laughs> I am very, very, very happy to be here at the Academy Awards 25th Annual Awards Show. This is Hollywood's most exciting giveaway show. <laughs> and I want to thank all the wrestlers for relinquishing their time. <laughs> so we can give these awards. Just showed you there's nothing that one group of actors won't do for another. <laughs> As Mr. Bra Brackett pointed out, this is indeed a wedding of two great entertainment mediums with uh, motion pictures and television. And with Oscar 25 years old, it's high time he got married. <laughs> While it's true that he has a child bride, it's a comfort to note that the kid is loaded. <laughs> In fact, the bride's father is picking up the tab for this wedding reception. <laughs> but isn't it exciting to know that a lot of these glamorous stars are going to be in your homes tonight? All over America, housewives are turning to their husbands and saying, put on your shirt, Joan Crawford is coming. <laughs> Television, that's where movies go when they die. <laughs> Mary Pickford presented Best Picture. The nominees were High Noon, The Quiet Man, Ivanhoe, Moulin Rouge, and Cecil B. DeMille's circus epic, The Greatest Show on Earth. While The Greatest Show on Earth was a box office success and not yet the focus of mockery that it has become in decades since, its win was still such a surprise that the cameraman couldn't find DeMille in the crowd and swung around aimlessly <laughs> trying to find him as he made it all the way up to the stage. Wasn't ready for his close-up, Mr. DeMille. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, God, I'm so good i mean honestly though i can see how like you wouldn't be ready for that you're just like ah oh, man really gotta focus on on this guy he's probably like searching the crowd for someone fun was charlton heston there did anyone invite charlton heston why would anyone invite him anywhere well at that point in time charlton heston was still not like Charlton. i mean he still was charlton heston like can't act as you have called him famously a frozen block of piss he's still that charlton heston but he's not like fascist charlton heston yet so, I mean, would you want to hang out with a frozen block of piss? I don't think so. Everybody in Hollywood is a frozen block of piss, or there's somebody who loves piss. There is no in between. <laughs> uh, you know who would love to hang out with a frozen block of piss? Ty Power. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> 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 oh, that's a funny joke, thank you. <laughs> I'm not going to explain it for anybody who doesn't know the context. Google it. Search for it on Bing. <laughs> <laughs> Support the Bing Theater at the L.A. County Museum of Art. 1955 saw perhaps one of the most enduring, still controversial Oscar upsets of all time when Grace Kelly won Best Actress for The Country Girl over Judy Garland for A Star is Born. Garland didn't attend the awards, having given birth to her son Joey Left the day before, but after the loss, she received over a thousand outraged telegrams of condolence, including one from Groucho Marx, which read, quote, 
quote, This is the biggest robbery since Brinks, a reference to the Great Brinks robbery of 1950 in which $3 million was stolen or nearly $32 million today. He's right. They sent they sent a television crew to Judy's hospital room. Did they? And yeah, they did. I, I can't remember if it was ABC or CBS or somebody there. So there was a television crew in Judy's room and they were setting up to do the remote thing and then Grace won and then they kind of just laughed. <laughs> This reminds me, actually, of the Academy Award that I lost. Do you remember? It was terrible, really. I had just had the baby. I just had my son, Joe. And I was just recovering from, from uh, having my darling son. And three great big men uh, came into my room at the hospital in the maternity ward with three television sets. And I said, I already had one of my own in there. And I said, what's this for? I said, well, you're going to get the Academy Award. We have got to have some extra sets in here so you can thank Bob Hope when you win it, you know. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, oh, yeah, you and Grace Kelly are neck and neck, and that is a terrible thought, you know. <laughs> <laughs> At any rate, I, I said, well, you can't just bring a whole crew and lights and all that and cameras into the maternity ward of a hospital there are other ladies here having babies, too. And they, oh, no, we don't, don't worry about it. And they pulled up the Venetian blind, and there was a big three-story tower that they'd constructed for a few days. <laughs> and there was a crew, a lot of people running around on that little munchkin-type people, hanging lights and so on. And uh, so I thought, well, they brought all those cameras, all those uh, uh, tech, uh, television sets in my room, and they built that tower. I've got to win it. I'm, I'm sorry. Because they wouldn't go to all that trouble. You know. So I rushed, I sent my secretary out to get this bed jacket, or any bed jacket, and I put a lot of makeup on and just posed against a pillow, you know, and all the sets were on in these men, and they, they had a little trouble with the sound. So they brought a and a wire, a big electric wire, a cable, so I put it under my bottom, up through here and down my nighty. And then covered me up to here with feathers, you know. And uh, a friend of mine came in. Oh, they, I had a nurse. I had a nurse with me who didn't know show biz. <laughs> and she, she was to operate the Venetian blind. <laughs> the most important thing she ever did or ever will do and she she was frozen with terror because they said if you pull that blind one moment before he says and who wins it in the open envelope Judy go, up goes the blind I say hi with apologies to medic here I you know and I was afraid I just had the baby and it was kind of hard but I thought well here and then John Royal a man friend of mine who's about well you know he's not a young man dear sweet man came in and they just put him on the floor they just said, you'll pick up, and they'll, you know, so lie on the floor, and they put his hat and smashed him down. <laughs> and we all were prepared. And by this time, you know, I was ready to say, hi, Bob, no matter what they said, I'd say, hi. <laughs> and so I was leaning against the pillow, and so I was thinking, and, and they said, they opened the envelope, you know, that airmail envelope, whatever they get, opened it up, and he said, Grace Kelly and I went, what? <laughs> well, they tore down the tower. The people jumped over. They ripped out this thing under... <laughs> the three television said, nobody said goodnight even. They were so mad. <laughs> they, were, they were so mad. I have an Oscars upset I would like to briefly allude to, um, which is Jose Ferrer winning Best Actor for Cyrano de Bergerac. 
And at the time, the favorite was, because Tiff asked if I had any Bill Holden moments, it was Bill Holden in Sunset Boulevard. And Bill was absolutely crestfallen when he lost. And then Brenda Marshall, whom he was married to at the time, began like berating him in front of their table. Oh, God. And being like, (laughs) you fucking suck as an actor anyway. So why did you ever think you were going to win an Oscar? And so he needed to hear it. I talk about a performance that nobody talks about anymore. Jose Ferrer. Does anyone talk about Jose Ferrer anymore? I don't think anyone pays any attention to Jose Ferrer. Yeah, I I don't think anyone. I I understand why it's an important win for somebody who's, you know, a political dissident. And also, obviously, because Jose Ferrer would be the first Latino to win an Oscar, at at least in the acting field, or probably in general. I can't think of anyone else. But um, I still do appreciate that it gave an extremely embittered, Brenda Marshall a chance to dunk on her pathetic sack of shit of a husband, even though he probably did maybe, maybe, maybe deserve the Oscar more that year. But I think winning for Stalag 17 is is really where he deserved it. So had he won for Sunset Boulevard, maybe he wouldn't have tried so hard in Stalag 17. But also maybe he wouldn't have killed someone. I don't know. It's all up in the air. So five years into the televised Academy Awards, they still didn't quite have time management down, which would be more embarrassing for them, if not for the fact that over 60 years later, they still don't know what they're doing. The 1958 Awards included a feature where Donald Duck narrated the history of film. Shockingly, the show then ended up running six minutes late, and Betty Davis, who was supposed to end the broadcast handing out the honorary awards, was cut out of the broadcast. About this, she said, My segment was six minutes in length. Unfortunately, that was also the length of Mr. Duck's bit of film, and they chose Donald Duck. Hoping to avoid a repeat incident the next year, producer Jerry Wald went crazy on the editing front, cutting out tons of segments as the show went along. This turned out to be a horrible mistake. The show's final number featured Zaza Gabor singing There's No Business Like Show Business. The curtain rose to reveal all of the evening's winners and presenters gathered together. This happened 20 minutes early, forcing host Jerry Lewis to frantically ad-lib for four minutes straight as the people on stage awkwardly paired up and started dancing. Oh, Oh, Jesus. Time magazine described the whole mess as an unplanned 20-minute melee that had the somewhat sweaty aroma of a combination of Arthur Murray, Lawrence Welk, Dick Clark, free-for-all. And then watching at home, Spencer Tracy allegedly said, my God, have we fallen to this. (laughs) We would like to now do 300 choruses of There's No Business Like Show Business. (laughs) And we would certainly appreciate it if you ladies and gentlemen would not leave your seats immediately because the manager of the theater wants us to let you know that they are showing a Three Stooges comedy to cheer up the losers. And for the benefit of all of you, ladies and gentlemen, who have your cars parked outside? You, you're giving me time? I see. We would like for you to please file out very, very carefully, because we have some very valuable property on the stage tonight. Mr. Newman, may I take the baton? And if I hit the downbeat, then they can sing, and we can walk off, the audience can leave, and we'll have a test pattern for an hour and 20 minutes. <laughs> would you hold this, please, Howard? Thank you, Jerry. Right. Thank you very much. What's the downbeat? I do like the concept of uh, Jerry Lewis having to just fucking struggle for four minutes straight. Like, 
in a flop sweat trying to get anything out of nothing. If anyone deserves it, it's him. They shouldn't have brought out Zsa Zsa. Zsa's just not, she's just not a reliable person. I think, I think we figured that out by now. It's no business like show business, huh? 1962 saw the first Oscars gatecrasher. As Vince Edwards and Shelley Winters were presenting the Cinematography Awards, a 35-year-old New York City cab driver named Stan Berman appeared on stage. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm the world's greatest gate crasher, and I just came here to present Bob Hope with his 1938 trophy. See you, Bob. <laughs> Stan Berman. <laughs> this is for Bob. We'll get to him. <laughs> <laughs> He then handed a tiny homemade Oscar to Shelley Winters. Uh, it turned out Berman was something of a like a hobbyist gatecrasher. He had previously crashed parties for John Glenn and John F. Kennedy, and he claimed that he lived on $35 a week and saved the rest of his income for, quote, gatecrashing expenses. Wow. Jesus. This is like the original Viner TikTok prankster guy. This is him. Well, I wonder when this year was, what year this man was born, because I wonder if he could be the reincarnation of Will Rogers. That has a very strong Will Rogers <laughs> energy to it. Also, because Will's ph- philosophy on life was that you should uh, only live on half of what you make and save the rest for, you know, things that are important to you. And that's what this man did. Compelling evidence of, <laughs> of life beyond the grave. Will Rogers is back in the form of a cab driver. So that'd be a shitty way to get reincarnated. And they have a cab driver in New York City in the 1950s. First of all, that's like a side character in a Billy Wilder movie who you never want to be. <laughs> or you could be played by Ward Bond, which you also don't want that to happen. I would never want to turn up be somebody who could be played by Ward Bond in a movie. I'm glad Ward Bond is dead. Um... <laughs> In 1963, Betty Davis received a Best Actress nomination for Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, and her co-star, Joan Crawford, resurrected some of that chaotic 1945 publicity energy by volunteering to accept the award for any Best Actress nominee who might not be able to attend the ceremony. The award went to Anne Bancroft, who couldn't attend due to Broadway commitments. According to show director Richard Dunlap, Joan instantly stood erect, shoulders back, neck straight, head up. She stamped out her cigarette, but grabbed the hand of the stage manager, who blurted afterwards, that she practically broke all of my fingers with her strength. Then she soared calmly on stage with that incomparable Crawford composure. Backstage, Betty bit her cigarette and seemed to stop breathing. Joan was out there. Suddenly, it was her night. And then interviewed years later, Betty Davis told the Los Angeles Times' Joyce Haber, I was positive I would get it. So was everybody in town. I almost dropped dead when I didn't win. I wanted to be the first actress to win three times, but now it's been done, so I may as well give up. And, of course, the fact that Miss Crawford got permission to accept for any of the other nominees was hysterical. I was nominated, but she was receiving the acclaim. It would have meant a million more dollars for our film if I had won. Joan was thrilled I hadn't. And the winner is... Anne Bancroft in Merciful. Accepting for Anne Bancroft, Miss Joan Crawford.
Miss Bancroft said, here's my little speech, dear Joan. Quote, there are three reasons why I deserve this award. Arthur Penn, Bill Gibson, Fred Cole. Unquote. Thank you. I love Joan. It's a real power move. <laughs> That's a real power move. She brought an energy to Hollywood pomp and circumstance that no one has ever replicated since. Extremely chaotic, extremely malevolent, extremely <laughs> dangerous, extremely powerful. I want her to step on my face. I love Joan Crawford. The controversy at the 1971 awards revolved around Best Actor nominee George C. Scott, who announced ahead of the show that he would not accept if he won for Patton, and true to his word, didn't show up to the ceremony. According to Scott, he rejected the award because, quote, the ceremonies are a two-hour meat parade, a public display with contrived suspense for economic reasons. This drew no shortage of responses. Uh, Ross Hunter said, if George C. wins, I'll resign from the Academy. He's ridiculing our Academy. And David Niven said, it could be just that he couldn't bear to hear someone else's name called out. Niv, that is just not it. Niv, I would have to agree with George C. Scott here. And Niv, you know, believed in the Oscars so much. Niven's acceptance speech, which you can see on YouTube, is one of my favorites. Because, like, that bitch is so pumped to win an Oscar. He's just like, this is the highlight of his whole life and cannot relate in any way at all. But <laughs> go off, I suppose. I'm so loaded, diamond, good luck charms. I could hardly make it up the steps. <laughs> Well, people have been saying thank you for Oscars for 30 years, and I have nothing to add except thank you. Uh, Scott's preemptive rejection of his Oscar was such a big deal, he wound up on the cover of Time under the headline, An Actor's Art, Rage Beneath the Surface. When he won the award, was accepted by patent producer Frank McCarthy, and Scott claimed to have spent the evening watching hockey and going to bed. Ha <laughs> tiff! Oh, oh it's man. a tiff night! <laughs> and the Oscar goes to... I've got to win this one. I bribed everyone in Hollywood. George C. Scott in Man Getting Hit by Football. <laughs> So let's see, 1973, uh, Marlon Brando wins Best Actor for The Godfather. At this point, there is a standoff in progress at Wounded Knee, South Dakota, where members of the American Indian movement have seized the town. Brando chose to send a proxy to reject his award in protest of Hollywood's poor treatment of Native Americans. Brando's proxy was Sachin Littlefeather, an aspiring actress and activist who took the stage and said, Hello, my name is Sachin Littlefeather. I'm Apache, and I'm president of the National Native American Affirmative Image Committee. I'm representing Marlon Brando this evening, and he has asked me to tell you in a very long speech, which I cannot share with you presently because of time, but I will be glad to share with the press afterwards, that he very regretfully cannot accept this very generous award. And the reasons for this being are the treatment of American Indians today by the film industry. Excuse me. And on television, in movie reruns, and also with recent happenings at Wounded Knee. I beg at this time that I have not intruded upon this evening and that we will, 
in the future, our hearts and our understandings will meet with love and generosity. Thank you on behalf of Marlon Brando. Uh, Little Feather's speech was met with both applause and boos and a wide range of responses afterwards. Announcing Best Actress alongside Gene Hackman, Raquel Welch commented, And the winner is... Hope they haven't got a cause. Ugh. And Raquel, if anyone should understand Hollywood racism, but whatever. Okay. Ahead of presenting Best Picture, Clint Eastwood said, I don't know if I should present this award on behalf of all the cowboys shot in all the John Ford westerns over the years. Shut the fuck up. Uh, die. When will he die? Why can't, yeah, when will he die? What a fucking idiot. I mean, if you're sitting in that audience and like listening to this impassioned speech by someone and then booing afterwards for something that is very obvious that you've done and continue to do in Hollywood. So once the show is over, Academy President Daniel Teradash said, my own reaction is that he has no guts if he had any class. He would have come down there and said it himself. That's my first reaction. Then Michael Caine agreed, saying, I think if the man wants to make a gesture, I agree entirely with what he did, but I think he should have stood up and done it himself instead of letting some poor little Indian girl take the booze. And if you're going to make a humanitarian gesture, I think a man who makes two million playing the leader of the mafia should at least give half of it to the Indians. I think Michael Caine might be right. Frozen blockopist Charlton Heston said, It was childish. The American Indian needs better friends than that. What? Like, like... Who? Definitely not him. People saying that he should have got up there and done it himself have no concept of, like, amplifying the voices of marginalized people. He gave his platform to a marginalized person. Like, why Why would he go up there and then speak about marginalized people when he's not one of those marginalized people? It's just, it's so infuriating. Yeah, I don't know, but I think the Academy is also such, an, is such a hostile place and a lot of Hollywood is such a hostile place. The American public is hostile that I think opening her up to humiliation and vitriol because her name has become a punchline i don't know if this is an american cultural thing but people still make jokes about touching little leather like it's she's still a punchline i think brando got to reap the rewards of it without having to like put his money true, where his mouth is in that sense i do think that he definitely receives a lot more praise for this than he should when she's the one who got up there and actually did it and at the very least, he should have been standing there behind her yeah. to support. I guess that's my, my problem with Brando in general, is that Brando gets credit for... I I think the guy liked to stir the pot, and yes. I think this was a, a, a time in which he was on the right side of history, but I do not entirely trust his motives for doing so, necessarily, you know? Yeah, I mean, yeah. He's just, like, such a master troll. I think Brando saw this moment as... Because um, the man's all ego. All ego and, and adult diapers. <laughs> I mean, like, I just feel like he's just George Scott, he's right at the moment, but I'm not going to give him any more credit than he deserves beyond this particular, you know, occasion. No. Because fuck Marlon Brando. Fuck him and his little mini-me in the Island of Dr. Moreau and their custom wardrobe. I do love his, actually, that is that's the only Brando <laughs> performance I think I really, I really love and cherish, actually, is the Island of Dr. Moreau. He should have won an Oscar for that movie. <laughs> That's when Brando deserved an Oscar. Uh, so Littlefeather had a few allies. Jane Fonda commented that she thought what Brando had done was wonderful. Although, again, as as mentioned, you know, he didn't really do anything himself. But um, she also recalled Eddie and Edward Albert stopping her backstage to offer their congratulations. But the polarized response was such that she ended up totally abandoning her acting ambitions just completely. You know, it's it's not a total wash, though. She went on to work in Native American healthcare, education and advocacy and like AIDS advocacy, stuff like that. So, I mean, she's certainly made a pretty good life 
and helped a lot of people, but it's definitely one of the more difficult incidences in Oscar's history, I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to know that she had support in the moment, because yeah. I can only imagine what that felt like. Um, I had no idea that Eddie Albert was so far to the left politically. I was really surprised to learn that. I learned that a, a while ago. And um, his son was, was half Mexican. His mother was a Mexican actress. So I think the two of them making that gesture towards her, I think, is also symbolic, you know? At the time, you have that horrible tension that is erupting in Hollywood between the new Hollywood and the old Hollywood, and I think that's actually kind of a weird, like, lovely moment of Eddie Albert representing the old Hollywood and his son representing the new Hollywood, kind of, like, bridging that to offer their support to her backstage. I don't know, that's kind of, I guess, like, a striking image to me. Yeah, I think Brando putting her up there as a way to absorb the the blows, I think... Uh, to me, just especially as a man and a white man and her being a native woman, uh, to me just doesn't, it doesn't strike me as being entirely correct, you know? Yeah, the only thing, I think the thing that I was meaning earlier is that people saying that the poor little Indian girl up mm-hmm. there, like that kind of rhetoric is so reductive and yeah. so frustrating. It's like the same it's kind really of rhetoric that's going on about Greta Thunberg now. It's like, these people have voices and they're worth listening to. Like, just because they've been put up there by somebody else doesn't mean that they're not, at least in some part, agents of their own cause. Also, Brando doesn't deserve that Oscar. There are so many good performances in The Godfather, and Brando's at, like, the bottom of my list. Like, how many other people deserved an Oscar for The Godfather performance? Pacino didn't win that year. John Cazale, Talia Shire... Literally anyone who's Abe Vigoda deserved an Oscar over Marlon Brando just to take a bone to pick with with Brando doing the least all the time and then just reaping rewards. Just an irritating actor. Just like June Allison. Marlon Brando, (laughs) June Allison, and Grace Kelly. Like a trifecta of people who just irritate me to no end. The 1974 Oscars were already more eventful than usual before shit went off the rails. Ten-year-old Tatum O'Neill became the youngest person ever to win a competitive Oscar when she was awarded Best Supporting Actress, and then 11-time nominee and three-time winner Catherine Hepburn made her first and only Academy Awards appearance when she agreed to present the Thalberg Award to producer Lawrence Weingarten. These moments were completely overshadowed, however, when David Niven took the stage to introduce Elizabeth Taylor, who was presenting Best Picture. As he began speaking, he was interrupted by a long-haired, mustached streaker running across the stage while flashing a peace sign. The orchestra began playing Sunny Side Up as show director Marty Pacetta switched cameras to keep the streaker's genitals off TV. Upon running off stage, the naked man was then apprehended by Academy security and taken backstage for further photos. And someone, quite likely... bound to happen. (laughs) But isn't it fascinating that... (laughs) Fascinating to think that that probably the only laugh that man will ever get in his life is by stripping off and showing his shortcomings. Niv said, tiny meat gang. 
Niv said, I have huge balls, unlike <laughs> you, sir. <laughs> I have fully descended testicles. Thank you. Variety was outraged, writing, The incident was a most unfortunate lapse of judgment on the part of the Academy, for they destroyed in a few seconds a 46-year history often characterized by pomposity, but nevertheless marked by propriety. What, like they invited him? Well, as you may have gathered, some suggested that the incident was staged. In response, producer Jack Haley Jr. commented, I would have used a pretty girl instead. Ugh. Well, he's not wrong. Who wants to see that man naked? <laughs> Niven didn't. However, Oscars business manager Robert Metzler later said, I don't think it was an accident. My wife was here for the dress rehearsal and David Niven asked her out in the lobby if he could borrow her pen. She gave it to him and he sat on a step out there and wrote his ad lib remark about this fellow's shortcomings. And then he told my wife how proud he was about this terse line he'd written. And that was two hours before it happened. That's all I know about it. So. Oh, man. Yeah, there's competing accounts of how intentional this was. Niv did it. Niv did it. <laughs> Entirely of his own volition. He came up with that joke and he just had to make it happen. He hired the guy. He he went on the 1970s equivalent of Craigslist, which I'm told was the newspaper classified. Then he looked for somebody who was <laughs> had tiny meat. And he said, you got tiny meat. I got a check for you. Meet me. And he did a whole deep throat thing. <laughs> in the back of an alley. <laughs> he had his hat drawn down over his big, fat, bulbous, balding forehead, the whole thing. So the streaker was identified as Robert Oppel, a 33-year-old who had previously worked as a speechwriter for Ronald Reagan before growing disillusioned with his employer and the Republican Party. He then began working as a photographer for publications like The Advocate and his own magazine entitled Finger. After the Oscars incident, Oppel ran for president as a nudist in 1976 and opened his own gallery of gay male photography called Faye Studios in San Francisco in 1978. Uh, unfortunately, it's a sad ending to this story. He was murdered a year later in an attempted robbery of the gallery. Jesus. Did Ronald Reagan do it? I mean, he did murder a lot of people. I think Niv should look in the mirror and think about what he did. I think he's culpable. Am I saying Niv got this man murdered? Potentially. Fay Way Studio. That is very funny. The 47th Academy Awards in 1975 were fucking crazy, but the drama there unfolded mainly behind the scenes. Uh, this is one I personally didn't know about at all until I started digging for this episode. So for context, the show had four hosts that year, Bob Hope, Shirley MacLaine, Frank Sinatra, and Sammy Davis Jr. Uh, best documentary went to Hearts and Minds about the Vietnam War. Accepting the award, producer Burt Schneider then stepped up to the microphone and said, uh, It is ironic that we are here uh, at a time just before Vietnam is about to be liberated. I will now read a short wire that I have been asked to read by the Vietnamese people. It is sent by Ambassador Din Ba Thi, who is the chief of the Provisional Revolutionary Government's delegation to Paris, the Paris political talks. It says, please transmit to all our friends in America our recognition of all that they have done on behalf of peace and for the application of the Paris Accords on Vietnam. These actions serve the legitimate interest of the American people and the Vietnamese people. Greetings of friendship to all the American people. 
As this is happening, Bob Hope is backstage absolutely losing his fucking mind. According to show producer Howard W. Cook, Bob Hope pinned me up against the wall, telling me I should do a disclaimer on air, and Shirley MacLaine was screaming at me, don't you dare. <laughs> when Frank Sinatra is about to introduce the writing awards, Hope composes his own disclaimer and forces it onto Sinatra, saying, if you don't read it, I will. So Sinatra takes the message, he goes on stage, and he reads as follows. Ladies and gentlemen, to deviate for one second. I have been asked by the Academy to make the following statement regarding a statement that was made by a winner. The Academy is saying, quote, we are not responsible for any political references on this program and we are sorry that they had to take place this evening. Uh, of course, this was written entirely by Bob Hope himself. Backstage, Shirley MacLaine let Sinatra have it. She said, why did you do that? You said you were speaking on behalf of the Academy. Well, I'm a member of the Academy and you didn't ask me. It was arrogant of you and Bob Hope not to submit it to the Board of Governors first. After this whole drama, the four hosts have to gather for the finale and sing That's Entertainment like they don't want to tear each other's hair out. <laughs> Uh, apparently Sinatra initially refused to go out at all and had to be, like, you know, politely coaxed by Sammy Davis Jr. That's entertainment. What is it? It's plain. Mrs. McLean gave a going report. I hope in his coat really made it all go. But if we put on a show and you burst the luck that gave us Sinatra and also Davis and now for a swift final After the show, Hope and John Wayne, of course, were throwing tantrums. Hope called Schneider's speech a cheap shot, and Wayne said Schneider was a pain in the ass and out of line and against the rules of the Academy. One of Schneider's defenders was Best Director winner Francis Ford Coppola, who commented, It's not a musical comedy, so the Academy in voting for that picture was sanctioning the message of that picture, which was in the spirit of Mr. Schneider's remarks. Bob Hope was still going long after the show running around the governor's ball, showing everyone telegrams from viewers who were mad about the speech, and Shirley MacLaine said, Bob Hope's so mad at me he's going to bomb Encino. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing that I will give Bob Hope credit for is the fact that I do not think they should have renamed the Burbank Airport. Everybody still calls it the Bob Hope Airport. Calling it the Hollywood Burbank Airport is extremely misleading because it's nowhere near Hollywood and tourists keep flying in and getting mad at their Uber drivers. And also, they used to have this big, I don't know if they still have it, there was this gigantic bronze, like, profile of Bob Hope hanging in the lobby at the Bob Hope airport. So you would fly in, and then it would be like, oh, God, big fat, big Bob Hope. Big Bob Hope! Big fat Bob Hope! Staring at me! Being like, what'd you do in Vegas, bitch? What'd you do in Vegas? Moralizing. Catholic ass Bob Hope. Anyway, fuck Bob Hope. Should not have changed the name of the airport, though. Because it's not in Hollywood. You can't call something the Hollywood airport if it's not in Hollywood. People are just going to get angry and scared. Because now they don't know where they are. <laughs> They're in Burbank! That's not Hollywood! So Vanessa Redgrave gave Burt Schneider a run for his money three years later at the 50th Academy Awards when she won Best Supporting Actress for the Holocaust drama Julia and gave the following speech. My dear colleagues, I thank you very, very much for this tribute to my work. I think that Jane Fonda and I have done the best work of our lives. 
And I think this was in part due to our director, Fred Zinnemann. And I also think it's in part because we believed and we believe in what we were expressing. Two out of millions who gave their lives were prepared to sacrifice everything in the fight against fascist and racist Nazi Germany. And I salute you, and I pay tribute to you, and I think you should be very proud that in the last few weeks you've stood firm and you have refused to be intimidated by the threats of a small bunch of Zionist hoodlums whose behavior, whose behavior is an insult to the stature of Jews all over the world and to their great and heroic record of struggle against fascism and oppression. And I salute that record, and I salute, salute all of you for having stood firm and dealt a final blow against that period when Nixon and McCarthy launched a worldwide witch hunt against those who tried to express in their lives and their work the truth that they believed in. I salute you, and I thank you, and I pledge to you that I will continue to fight against anti-Semitism and fascism. So while this was happening, protesters from the Jewish Defense League were burning effigies of Redgrave outside the venue. Whimsy was temporarily restored when Redgrave was followed by Mark Hamill presenting with R2-D2 and C-3PO, then Jodie Foster <laughs> with Mickey Mouse, and then a performance of You Light Up My Life by Debbie Boone accompanied by 11 schoolgirls interpreting the lyrics in American Sign Language, who it turned out were not actually deaf and did not actually know ASL, so it was all gibberish. <laughs> Jesus Christ. That's the Academy, baby. However, things then went crazy again when Patty Chayefsky took the stage to present the writing awards and said, uh, Before I get on to the writing awards, there's a little matter I'd like to tidy up, at least if I expect to live with myself tomorrow morning. I would like to say, personal opinion, of course, that I'm sick and tired of people exploiting the occasion of the Academy Awards. <laughs> For the propagation of their own personal political propaganda. I would like to suggest to Ms. Redgrave that her winning an Academy Award is not a pivotal moment in history, does not require a proclamation, and a simple thank you would have sufficed. So then, after the show at the Governor's Ball, Academy President Howard W. Koch recalled, I felt sorry for Vanessa because at the party afterwards, she was sitting all alone with just her two bodyguards. No one else would sit with her, and it was her big night. Then Chayefsky, on the other hand, claimed that Redgrave made the rounds at the party and said, This is disgusting. Vanessa thinks she can get away with anything. How can she have the nerve to be here? Dennis Hamill of the Los Angeles Herald-Examiner wrote, Patty Chayefsky is a hypocrite when he stood up to criticize Vanessa Redgrave for using her speaking time after winning the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress to make a political statement. Anyone who castigates another person for exercising her right to free speech is making a political statement. Maybe you agree with him, but get it straight. He was pontificating, he was didactic, he was politicking. The fact that people like argue, like, oh, keep it away from the art, half of what you're talking about is informed or is a reflection or a comment on politics in some way 
how can you keep it out of it? It's it's very reductive and very dumb. Well, and, and the Academy Awards are political. They are yeah. a management tactic. It's a corporate, industrial, you know, it's, it's no less political than lobbying in Washington. It's no less political than the inner workings of the fucking Teamsters Union. I mean, this is how Hollywood operates, and this is how they keep their rogue members in check. And the Academy has always, I think, attempted to stoke these kinds of moments in order to, I don't know, I think it's become more blatant in recent years because the ratings have have dropped so severely. But like, you know, making somebody like James Franco the host and then being astonished when Franco does a terrible job of it and seems out of it and it's inappropriate throughout the night. You know, they they do these things and they've turned the Oscars into such a farce that then to take any sort of serious political action from an Academy member, an award winner, a nominee, whatever, and then being like, well, how dare you treat this as if it's some sort of, you know, serious ceremony. You know what I mean? It's like, uh, it, it can't be simultaneously something that is sanctified and then something that's also just like buffoonery. You know, and the Oscars is nothing but buffoonery most years. And so it's just so disingenuous and just goes back to the fact that Hollywood is such a conservative institution and the Academy is such a conservative institution. And I'm coming out really hard on the Academy in this episode. And I do respect the Academy for its stewardship of film history. All of that. I, I am a big fan of a lot of the Academy's endeavors. It's support of student filmmaking. It's late but still significant recognition of the work of women and people of color in the industry, the efforts of different arms uh, of the Academy to preserve history. I, I think that that is very important. But the Academy is still, I think, in a lot of ways, not a force of good. And I think something like the Vanessa Redgrave incident just reinforces the idea that this is just it's like the dundies you know from the office (laughs) it's just the dundies on a a multinational like on a global stage with millions of people watching and you know billions of dollars worth of jewels in attendance it shouldn't be treated as as anything more than that in order to defend it and insulate it from any sort of external criticism It, it it's a beauty pageant at the end of the day and if somebody wants to turn their moment in the sun at the beauty pageant into something political, you know what? You got to rethink the whole, why are we parading ourselves in the first place, you know, for this for this attention and this adulation from the public? You can't have it both ways. Fuck the Academy. Fuck Patty Chayefsky. Which is also so funny because his work is also so political. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, uh, it's the Oscars. It's a special ceremonial thing where we're all supposed to pretend that we get along, you know, and we're all fine. And everybody's going to sing That's Entertainment afterwards. It's just so hollow and so false, you know, for an industry that is just absolutely rife with every kind of prejudice, every kind of corruption, every kind of abuse. Fuck Patty Chayefsky. And fuck June Allison. <laughs> Okay, so the 1981 awards were held the day after Ronald Reagan, he keeps coming up, was shot. Uh, The show was opened with a pre-recorded segment of Ronnie that had been filmed a week earlier. Tonight, I applaud all who create, make, distribute, exhibit, and attend movies. I salute the Academy for the influence its work has on the world's most enduring art form. Film is forever. I've been trapped in some film forever myself. And as a former member of the Academy, I ask you now to join Nancy and me in enjoying this year's ceremonies. 
Uh, and just to make everyone feel like shit about how far we haven't come in 40 years, protesters picketed the ceremony with signs reading, Who will win Best White Actress and Best White Actor? And Roman Polanski is a pervert. <laughs> oh my god. The last Oscars I want to discuss today are the 61st, held in 1989. Um, obviously I could keep going because we're still 30 years ahead of the present day and these things are an unmitigated disaster every single year. But since we're technically a classic film podcast and since I've been talking for nine years already, I'm gonna call it a day here. Luckily though, 1989 is a real doozy to go out on. I made you guys watch this one because it has to be seen to be believed, I think, and I'm going to embed oh, yeah. the video on our WordPress and I'll tweet it out when this episode goes up and all that shit cuz you got to watch this. It's crazy. Horrifying. It is the it is the best argument for busting up all of the studio monopolies and forcing all of these people into the poorhouse. The fact that it only ruined one career. It should have ruined many careers. Rob Lowe's, first and foremost. After a pretty rough dry spell in ratings and reviews throughout the 1980s, they attempted to jazz up the ceremony and came up with one of the most catastrophically bad telecasts in Oscars history. Grease producer Alan Carr was hired to spearhead the show, and he made the incredibly brave decision to kick things off with a 12-minute opening number that, like I said, has to be fucking seen to be believed. This begins with the totally unknown actress Eileen Bowman portraying Disney's Snow White, arriving at the show and doing some nightmarish audience interaction with a bunch of celebrities who look like they'd rather be dead. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here's one of the great legends of Hollywood. She's back with us tonight, Miss Snow White. Good evening. Oh, good evening, Mr. Archer. It is so exciting to be here tonight. I'm a little late, though. Can you tell me how to get into the theater? That's easy, Snow. Just follow the Hollywood stars. Follow the Hollywood stars? Oh, follow the Hollywood stars! There are stars out tonight. Stars with glamour are gleaming and bright. Martin Landau, who looked pumped. Martin Landau looked very excited to be meeting Snow White. I don't know if he knew that that wasn't the real Snow White. <laughs> but also, like, the fact that she kept singing and, like, she just kept going off-key. It happened so, like, frequently. I can see why everyone is uncomfortable because of the, like, visuals of it all. But, like, the audio of it all, it's just... It's a nightmare situation. Yeah, Bowman recalled reaching out to shake Michelle Pfeiffer's hand during the audience interaction segment and said Pfeiffer was so embarrassed she could not even give me her hand. Then of the segment, she also recalled, I was told not to go to Robin Williams in the audience because God knows what he would do. But running down that aisle, all I could see was the back of heads and I was thinking, I'll just go to Kevin Klein. But they were sitting one row apart and I accidentally went up to Robin. I was like, abort, abort. Martin Landau grabbed my hand with both of his and he just looked at me. He was precious. Tom Hanks was 
wonderful. But all of these people were like, what the hell are you doing? The number was 15 minutes long from start to end, and I remember looking at Rob Lowe going, it's finally over. Uh, for his part, Martin Landau said Bowman had, quote, a look on her face, if I remember correctly, of pain. It wasn't her fault. <laughs> So then from there, they, like, weekend at Bernie's a bunch of ancient old Hollywood stars who look like they're about to be dead and, like, they have no idea where they are. Um, among them, Buddy Rogers, Alice Faye, Dorothy Lamour, Roy Rogers, and Dale Evans. Uh, the shambling ghost of Vincent Price. He's just... He is, like, not present. He is just, like, someone has taken him out <laughs> for the day and he's, like, he's just happy to kind of be out. He doesn't know what is happening, what is going on. He's just glad he got let out of the home. So this is all happening while Merv Griffin is singing I've Got a Lovely Bunch of Coconuts for some reason. Oh my god. Ladies and gentlemen, Merv Griffin! I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. There they are standing in a row. Big one, small one, some as big as your head. You give them a twist, a flick of the wrist, what the showman said. Good evening and welcome to the fabulous Coconut Grove, where every night is exciting. Meet the stars, Mr. Buddy Rogers, Miss Alice Faye, Mr. Tony Martin, his beautiful wife, Sid Charisse. And people didn't know that Merv Griffin was gay. I I, I cannot fathom that at all <laughs> in any universe. Uh, then fucking Rob Lowe comes out and duets with Snow White on a movie-themed version of Proud Mary, which is insane. Used to work a lot for Walt Disney, starring in cartoons every night and day. But you said goodbye to grumpy and sleepy. Left the dwarves behind, came to town to stay. Big lights keep on burning, cameras keep on turning. Rolling, rolling, keep the cameras rolling. Rolling, rolling, keep the cameras rolling. Keep the cameras rolling. And at that point, the number's still only half over. It keeps going. There are, like, dancing tables and shit. I really can't, I can't do it justice. Please, for the love of God, go watch this. If you're listening to this now, as soon as you get a chance, you need to see this. There is so much bad taste present there. And I, I also find it surprising that anybody would be surprised that the guy who made Grease might not have the best grasp of, like, what is, like, tacky and what isn't tacky. <laughs> yeah. I know that the excuse later on was that they tried to kind of model it after Beach Blanket Babylon, but that is such a, I'm going to say it, n niche, such a niche, like, cultural reference, like, callback, and so specific to, like, a very, like, West Coasty, basically, like, gay subculture-y kind of thing that I'm like, I don't think that was really going to resonate with uh, the viewers in the Midwest or, you know... The shambling, yeah, like, ghost of, of Vincent Price. They didn't know what was going on. They had no idea what was going on. Again, Vincent Price might have literally thought that was Snow White. I don't know, <laughs> you know. But I think it was very proud of them to bring three bisexuals out on stage, though. Vincent Price, Coral Brown, <laughs> and Buddy Rogers. I think that when we were watching this, I, I, I had never really seen the footage before. Like I said, this was all new to me. I'd only ever heard of the legend. And Rob Lowe's voice cracks so many times. He should be in jail. Rob Lowe should be in prison for this. This should have done more damage to his career 
than like the Democratic National Convention. Like that's how bad this is. This is a crime against every single person in attendance. And like Lily Tomlin says at the end, the like billion people watching. It's humiliating, actually. I can't I can't imagine being Roblo after that. Well, <laughs> In the green room after the number, as it became increasingly clear that it had totally bombed, uh, Lucille Ball spent an hour holding Rob Lowe's hand, <laughs> just like to comfort him. I guess she was. This was her last public appearance. She was old as shit, about to die, and she. Like, I think she died like weeks later, right? She dies right after this happened, like, yeah. a month later. Technically, could we say that Rob Lowe killed Lucille Ball? Rob Lowe should go take a look in the mirror and think <laughs> about what he's done. On a lot of different levels. When they cut to Robert Downey Jr., that was very, that was my favorite moment, maybe, when they pan past Robert Downey Jr., because I can't remember who's before him, and they're trying to, like, be polite, and then Robert Downey Jr. is just doing this, like, slow clap with this, like, look of disgust on his face that's very relatable. <laughs> and to me, it's very much like, oh, right, that's why he's a movie star. He doesn't give a fuck. He doesn't care at all. He is not concerned about this. Yeah, it definitely has to be seen to be believed. I mean, even the, like, people dressed as stars. Oh, my God. Oh, those are my favorite. Uh, it's just like big stars with legs. It's just, it's surreal uh, and absurd in a way that really just should not exist. It's so high school. Like, it's so amateur, like community theater. If you told me a bunch of 13-year-olds put that on, I wouldn't be surprised. And then at the very end, when Lily, I put this in my notes, Lily Tomlin emerging like reverse Jennifer Hudson and Cats is what I put down in my notes. <laughs> just descending from above, you know, and then there's somebody crawling on the ground is that rob Lowe? who's crawling down the steps after her what is that what does that mean what does that signify it was to get a shoe and then he throws it to her but then he misses and then she makes a joke about a shoe like the show must go on but she says shoe instead i assume that was a reference to ed sullivan so that completely i completely missed that but yeah the whole thing is just woof crazy Almost as crazy as the Academy Awards, was it two years ago? The one where Shape of Water won, where there was just a whole tribute to the troops. Oh, that was weird, yeah. That just fucking happened out of nowhere. Like, I remember Tiff and I were watching it and we were just like, what's happening? Why is this happening? It took you right back to, like, 2002. It's just like, what is going on? And I'm proud to be the shambling ghost of <laughs> do you guys remember a couple of years ago this might have been even been the same oscars because they all just blend together in my mind at this point the the horrible neil patrick harris like that's show busy kind of like number that was very much like this it had a lot in common with this slightly better executed but it had that exact same tenor of like what am i watching like a high school awards show you know, and then they're going to hand out best hair. It was just, it was so bad. I mean, I would like to point out that I won best hair at our year 12 formal. So just wow, ease up on that prize. Okay, well, I'm proud of you. <laughs> I didn't win anything. I should have won something. The best thing, the best thing was is because I used to straighten my hair all through high school and to win best hair, all I did was wash my hair and wear it curly and put like a clip in it and I won over girls who had spent like three hours at the salon so the most i've ever done to win an award we should win a podcasting award the webbies here we come we i don't know if we need to be there in person tiff will not show up but i will be (laughs) proud of joan crawford in her place joan is responsible for so many wacky oscars moments like 
when she got mad that Joanne Woodward made her own dress. Joan's just chaotic. I love it. I love it. So Bowman, uh, who played Snow White, she had to sign a gag order swearing not to discuss the performance with the press for 13 years. Disney filed a lawsuit over the unauthorized use of Snow White and 17 major industry figures, among them Gregory Peck, Paul Newman, Billy Wilder, and Julie Andrews, signed an open letter describing the show as, quote, an embarrassment to both the Academy and the entire motion picture industry. (laughs) And Alan Carr never worked in Hollywood again. We have to watch the Alan Carr documentary. Apparently it interviews, you know, various people he knew. Steve Gutenberg's in it. What's your favorite Steve Gutenberg movie, everybody? Mine is Three Men and a Baby. You're full of shit. You know what movie he was in? What? He was in Roller Coaster, 1977. He is an uncredited role. It's his first film role. Oh, okay. Oh, he plays Messenger. Okay, well, that would be why I don't remember Steve Gutenberg being in Roller Coaster. Okay, well then, yeah. Okay, that uh, that might have to supplant uh, Three Men and a Baby as my favorite Steve Gutenberg movie. You know, he started out with a bang and he just never, he never recovered. He never rose to such dizzying heights ever yeah. again. Literally, because the roller coaster goes up high. (laughs) Hey, so here's something weird. I'm on Steve Gutenberg's wiki page. The 6th annual Fire Island Golden Wagon Film Festival honored Gutenberg with the 2008 Tony Randall Lifetime Achievement Award for his work in the entertainment industry, as well as his community service. The award was created in tribute to the first Golden Wagon honoree, Tony Randall, and is given to a member of the entertainment industry who embodies the same love of Fire Island, independent spirit, and community service that Randall shared. Tony Randall fire island enthusiast you know i'm not gonna suggest anything but fire island i guess there are straight people on fire island excuse me there's a memoir written by steve gutenberg published in 2012 what do you think the title of steve gutenberg's memoir is what is it the gutenberg bible fuck off wow okay all right sorry for that little uh steve gutenberg sideline but we just we just learned a lot well anyway i guess we should wrap it up i guess the one thing is top picks for this year's Academy Awards. What do you want to see win? Who do you want to see lose? Do we even care? Does it matter? Well, the only Best Picture nominees I've seen so far, and we're recording this on uh, January 18th or 19th in Australia, I've only seen Jojo Rabbit and Parasite. I'm obviously rooting for Parasite out of those two. Jojo Rabbit I enjoyed, but it's not my Best Picture, so. Parasite was extremely good. I think it should win. I know it won't. Um, but I want it to win. I am rooting primarily against people. I'm rooting against Adam Driver in Marriage Story. I'd like Antonio Banderas to win. Yeah. I don't want Quentin Tarantino to be enabled any longer. Neither Scorsese. I just, uh, that's enough. Three hours is just too long for me to care about anything, let alone Robert De Niro. I so feel like it's category manipulation for Tom Hanks to be in supporting actor. So now I'm rooting against him, but also I'm rooting against Anthony Hopkins because he's playing a pope. So now it's between Brad Pitt, Joe Pesci, and Al Pacino. I love Joe Pesci. However, I could not stay awake during The Irishman. So don't know how I feel about that. I am rooting against Scarlett Johansson because she's a tree. I am rooting against Tarantino, like you said. Sam Mendes irritates me for whatever reason, so I guess I'm rooting against him. Noah Baumbach, again, rooting against him. Rooting against Ryan Johnson for obvious reasons. Yeah, I'm mostly just rooting against people this year. Um, I would like Robert Richardson to win Best Cinematography for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think that's really the only award that I feel like strongly about. Maybe Diane Warren to win Best Original Song. 
Because I think she needs another, like, of her, like, 85 Oscars. I think that would be funny if she got another one. Todd, what do you think? I'm looking through these. I'm not... I just... There's just so many bad movies this year. Yeah, I haven't seen enough to really feel like I have any right to comment at this point. I'm gonna try to watch a few more before, but I do not see myself sitting through The Irishman or Marriage Story. So those are not going to happen. Yeah. Well, that's the beauty of rooting against people because you don't need to know what you like. You just need to know what you don't like. And yeah, that's the best way to watch the Oscars. Yeah, because you always there's always people you hate. I don't want to see Brad Pitt win an Oscar. I just don't because he's going to go up there and then I'm going to have to pretend that he didn't punch his kid or whatever. And I'm not going to do that. I haven't even heard of the movie that Diane Warren is nominated for. Breakthrough starring Chrissy Metz. What? what the fuck is that? I don't know. Breakthrough 2019. It's American Christian drama, okay? I suppose those need music too. Tragedy strikes when Joyce Smith's adopted son John falls through the ice on a frozen lake in Missouri. Trapped underwater for more than 15 minutes, rescuers bring John back to the surface and rush him to the nearest hospital. While doctors fear the worst, the 14-year-old boy continues to fight for his life as Joyce, her husband, and their pastor stay by his bedside and pray for a miracle. Isn't this just like the Greg Kinnear movie? Heaven is for real? Topher Grace is in this. Topher Grace and Josh Lucas are both in this. You know, I think I might have to rescind my support for diane warren because that's not good and i don't think we should continue to enable christian filmmaking in any way pedro for grace is the pastor i just think i have to draw attention to that oh my god <laughs> he tried the, the wikipedia describes him as the local pastor who tries to connect with the youth oh my god a youth pastor that's even worse hello fellow kids with his boom box on his shoulder it was uh released one month after the acquisition of Fox by the Walt Disney Company. Well, I think you mean 20th century. Searchlight Pictures. Yeah, Searchlight Pictures. It's not Fox anymore. God, isn't that sad? That is so sad. And also funny because when 20th century and Fox merged, I'm pretty sure Fox was the mo more powerful studio and 20th century was relatively irrelevant because wasn't that um, Xanax Studio? And now it's like 20th century has lived on and Fox hasn't. The ironing of it all. That's sad. It actually is sad. It actually is very sad. The saddest thing of all is the monopoly Disney has on yeah. entertainment. And really the message you should be taking out of this episode is that big corporate elitism is the root of all evil and should be expelled. So unionize. And root against any Disney product this year at the Oscars. Fuck Louis B. Mayer. Fuck the Academy. Fuck Ronald Reagan. Thanks for listening. Thank you. For Please listening. let us know what you think. Write and review us uh, wherever you listen to this podcast because it really does help a lot. Uh, you can keep up with us on social media at BasketPod on Twitter and Instagram. I'm sure there'll be some hot tweets coming out during the this year's Academy Awards ceremony. Hot off the presses. Yeah, just try and avoid any situation that makes you look like Frank Capra. Don't do anything deserving of an award. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Who keeps the Martians under wraps? We do, we do. Who holds back the electric car? 
Of their sight, who rigged every Oscar night. We do. 